Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Last week on the show, Jerry and I discussed some new liturgical changes in the Vatican. Priests are no longer permitted to celebrate Mass alone in St. Peter's Basilica, and any Masses said in the pre-Vatican II form are restricted to one chapel in the Church's crypt. Jerry described this change as part of Pope Francis's ongoing effort to implement Vatican II. To go deeper into that conversation, I spoke with church historian Massimo Fagioli, who's written extensively on Vatican II. We spoke on America Magazine's YouTube show, Behind the Story. Here's that conversation. Welcome to the show, Massimo. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so Massimo, I, I want to start out by just laying out, you know, this change has been phrased as a... Uh, as an effort to continue implementing Vatican II. And I'm wondering if you can tell me, like, what exactly is it about these changes that were made that are implementing Vatican II? So this change looks minimal because it is limited to St. Peter's Basilica, but actually it sends a very important message, which is that the celebration of Mass in the extraordinary form, which means in in the pre-Vatican II uh, right should be the exception and not the norm. And so this is important because what we have seen, especially since 2007, with uh, Pope Benedict the 16th motu proprio of uh, July 7th, two, 2007, Summorum Pontificum, which tried to make peace between those who are uh, happy with the liturgical reform of the, of the Second Vatican Council and those groups that are not happy with that and are more attached to the Latin Mass or, or the pre-Vatican II Mass. And so what we have seen since 2007 is, in my opinion, this dangerous tendency to see both rites at the same level, which was not the intent of, of Pope Benedict and it, it was not even the intent of the special permissions that were given by John Paul II starting in 1984. And so this is, is important because he sends messages, especially to those priests, uh, clergy in Rome uh, that study in, in, in Rome or, or spend some time in, in Rome, that the natural form of the celebration of, of the Mass is public, is with congregation, it shouldn't be private. And so that um, is important right now because it tends to correct a certain tendency to give privilege to the, to the so-called Latin Mass as if celebrating in Latin is more Catholic or more traditional. This is theologically not true. And, and, and the Vatican chose this, this moment and, and, and this way to say that because there is a certain reluctance to uh, accept this message 
in uh, some quarters or in some circles of the Catholic Church. Yeah, I want to ask you kind of maybe a bigger picture question about that, which is, you know, why, why if the if Vatican II made these changes almost 60 years ago, why haven't they been implemented fully yet? Like, why, why are people still celebrating the pre-Vatican II Mass? How do you explain um, <clears throat> allowing that to happen? So, it, what we have seen recently in these last few years may give the impression that there has been a failure since 1964 when Vatican II started implementing this. But actually, what we see between 1964 and the late 90s is a very peaceful and very rapid uh, and very interesting implementation of that, which is monumental because it was not just shifting from the Missal of 1570 in Latin, but it, it, it was about the enculturation of liturgy in different cultures, different languages, translations, I mean, a massive, massive undertaking. And so this has worked. What has happened, and I have to say this with all due respect, is, is that with the, the election of Pope Benedict, we had a Pope that for the first time since Vatican II had become skeptical of the liturgical reform. Um, his personal taste was for the pre-Vatican II Mass, and it's something that happened to him many years after Vatican II, because during Vatican II, he was uh, very optimistic. Right, right. And so what we have seen is this, uh, and so it's only a recent tendency that has seen a return, a revival of the Latin Mass, which is limited to some countries or some areas of, of the world, and some specific kind of Catholics, it's not widespread to all Catholics, to all countries. It's typical of English-speaking countries, mostly, uh, or France, but one comparison um, in, in Italy, where I come from, the fans of the Latin Mass are one tiny fraction of those who are big fans in the United States. This is, it's applicable to all other countries, I would say. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that because it is very popular among the subsets of Catholics who who like the Latin Mass. You know, you, you see packed Latin Mass churches. Um, and I'm curious about what you think this, this new uh, guideline for St. Peter's Basilica might do to the existing divisions between the parts of the church that, that prefer the Tridentine Mass and, and the parts that prefer the Vatican II Mass? It's a very difficult question. So uh, directly in the short run, we'll do nothing. What can accomplish is this, is to subtract from that uh, liturgical climate that young clergy uh, can breathe in Rome, in the Vatican, uh, a certain idea that liturgical formalism, traditionalism, uh, is the future. And so that can really give a different impact, a, a, a different feeling to those who for work or study 
spend in Rome months or, or years. And so that has a huge impact because I remember that I studied for one year in, in, in Germany and I went to mass every day to the seminary where I was living. And that gives you a lot of ideas of it shapes your formation. And so that can have a long-term effect. Short-term, I don't think it will mean anything because we know that those communities uh, that already have a vibrant uh, climate uh, liturgically will continue. And there's nothing wrong about that as long as we don't think that this is going to be the future of the liturgy and that the old rite will absorb the new rite because this is the big danger against which Pope Francis is warning us. Yeah, I think that the point that you raised about the formation of priests is really interesting uh, because, you know, any any morning that you walk into St. Peter's Basilica when it's early, like 7, 7.30, as soon as it opens up, already you see maybe... 100 or 200 priests pass through over that first couple of hours in the day uh, and they they go and they celebrate mass alone or maybe with one or two people uh, uh, following along with them and it's it's so quiet you actually like almost can't hear them uh, but then when you when you kind of stick around you realize that there are just so many people passing through there's 46 altars and you've got like 30 or 40 people saying mass alone all at the same time uh i want to ask you about the the lay involvement because i think that's a big part of this right part of what makes uh going into saint peter's early in the morning and seeing this happen when you're uh, a lay person like me who has grown up with vatican ii uh there's there's a disconnect right between you want to be in the church following along with the mass, but you almost can't pick a mass to follow along with. Um, what does this uh, What does this new guideline say about involving lay people in the liturgy? Well, it says that mass is essentially, by default, a celebration of the community. So I teach a course on Vatican II, and one of the, of the photos that I showed to my student is of the bishops that were celebrating Mass before going to the Vatican for, for, for the assembly. And you see a row of the 20, 30 altars where every single bishop celebrated by himself. Mm-hmm. And so this makes no sense according to the theology of the Second Vatican Council, because it's even if you celebrate alone as a priest, it's not your mass. It's always the mass of the church. And so it's a contradiction to have a certain theology of the church and of the liturgy and allowing uh, hundreds of uh, priests every day or, or every week to, to celebrate individually because that is a distortion of the theology of the liturgy and of the church. And so it would make much more sense. And I think this is something they want to implement to say there will be a mass in this rite or in the other rite, one at seven, one at 7.30. And if you want to celebrate, please go there and you can concelebrate. But of course, concelebration is something that can happen according to the Vatican II, right? 
And so, uh, so here there has to be an acknowledgement at some point that the theology of the church and of the liturgy of Vatican II are the theology of the Catholic Church. And this is the critical point because you see that most fans of the old right, so they say it's about the language, it's about the, uh, the, uh, the solemnity, but in one way or another, often the final target is Vatican II as such. And, and so there has been, and it's, it's been made very clear in words, in texts, in chapters, books, that for some of them, the final goal is to revert or abrogate the reform of the Second Vatican Council, not just of the liturgy, but Vatican II as such. And this is very dangerous. And this is something against which Pope Francis has repeatedly said that this church is, is the church of the Second Vatican Council, it's unthinkable to go back. And so the, the liturgy is the first debate Vatican II started with in 62. If you want to undo Vatican II, you start by undoing the liturgy of the Second Vatican Council. And, and this is a danger. And here Francis is very aware of this, and he has never made a mystery about that. You've used that word danger a few times, and I'm wondering if you could talk about how you see that as dangerous. It's dangerous not because the liturgy before Vatican II was bad or was not holy. I, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what has happened in these last few years has been an unnatural division along the lines of different theologies of the liturgy that is unnatural because it's, it's different from the multiplicity that there is between the Roman rite or the Ambrosian rite or the Melkite Chaldean. And so here you have two Roman rites that in the way they have been shaped in these last few years, it's not a it's impossible to think about them in terms of coexistence. Unfortunately, it has become a competition. And what is clear is that Vatican II wanted very clearly to have a, a reform of the liturgy of the church and not create a biritual Roman rite church. And so we have seen in some local context, and in these last few months, for example, the, the bishops of, of, of France have, have published the, the report, and they say that in some local context, that has created a division where Catholics don't see themselves as members of the church, but members of this rite, or the other right. That is the danger. So it would be fine if we were in 62 or 61 or 63. But now after 2007, the impression has been given that uh, these two rights are equal. And in some churches, in some seminaries also, the message has been 
that actually, if you really want to be a good Catholic, you should, you, you should pray in Latin. This is against the spirit and the text of the Second Vatican Council because it's not just about the language. It's the theology of, of the liturgy, what kind of uh, scriptural passages you read or, or you don't read in liturgy. So here there is, it's a problem of ecclesial division and the Catholic Church is all about unity. I mean, and if, if we start being united, uh, disunited or divided around liturgy, well, I believe it's a dangerous point. I want to ask you kind of a historical question because you are a, a church historian, but then you also comment on current church issues in your column at Commonweal and all the other places that you write. Um, and so you've seen the issues that, that have come up as we've had this kind of almost start and stop implementation of Vatican II. I know that you said earlier that it was, it's been, you know, pretty, pretty peaceful, but then there's also been these, uh, these kind of hiccups. And, you know, there's this saying uh, that you hear a lot if you try to look at the history of the church, that it takes a century to implement a council. And we're 60 years into that now, looking at Vatican II. And I was wondering if you could just give some general context on why it takes so dang long. Well, it takes long historically always. I mean, if we, if we look at the, uh, the Council of Trent, one of the, of the most important innovations was the invention of the seminary for the formation of the priests. And we really don't have a seminary in the average diocese one century after the end of the Council. So this is very typical. For Vatican II, it's even more, more complicated. Why? Because Vatican II uh, is about uh, a reform or a, or a renewal of the church in a global context. And so what was true for, for Trent was that you still operate in a cultural canon that is European uh, and continental European, actually. It, it, it's about France and Spain and, and Germany and, and Italy. Italy, of course. And so here Vatican II exits from this canon. And so it takes a long time or different times in different areas to, to, to implement. And so what we see, for example, with the liturgy in North America uh, is a crisis of growth because we saw in the 1970s, 80s, very, very strong movement of implementation of the liturgy. And so we're coming back to that. But if you go to in China, for example, we know that even in China, Latin mass is quite popular. Why? Well, because Vatican II has barely arrived there. And mm. so they still work with those manuals and those models. So it's, it's not always about being conservative or being liberal. It's that there are cultural situations that are so different. And so Vatican II, it will probably take even more time. And so if one looks at the message on ecumenism or on the freedom of religion, it's very different being in North America or in Vietnam or in Australia or in Korea. I mean, so 
it really takes a long time. The importance of this is that though there has to be a certain consistent view in the magisterium, in the teaching of, of, of the church about the whole theological basis of that. And so here Francis has no intention to suppress or silence those who like Latin mass, but he's saying, look, you can have that Latin mass, okay, you cannot have the theology of the 16th century that was at the basis of Latin mass. Uh, it, 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 it's a distinction that it's important because that theology of, of the 16th century would automatically exclude vast areas of global Catholicism from becoming part of, 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 of the Catholic Church. And so this is why we are here in this moment, which is natural, I think, but it's also natural for the Pope to say clearly where the theology of the church is on the liturgy. Can you give me some of the basics on kind of the difference between the the theology of the 16th century versus the theology of Vatican II, like how those show up in our worship? So there is, first of all, a difference in, in, in ecclesiology. So uh, we now operate with a, an idea of, of the church that is egalitarian, that is non-clerical, so where being member of the church is measured against your baptism and not against your ordination or your uh, hierarchy. And so that makes a, a, a difference in the way we, we are supposed to be part of the liturgy and of the participation and so on. And so one example is, is that what Vatican II has said on, on ecumenism, and on, on the Jews has huge implications on the liturgy because, I mean, evidently we now read at mass regularly from the Old Testament uh, because Jesus was Jewish and he never left Judaism behind. And if you, don't, uh, if you never read from the Old Testament or, or Jewish scriptures, you will never understand what Jesus was about. And so that is, is a huge difference because, of course, we don't have that in in the 16th century. But again, it's not because they were bad Christians. It's because it takes time for the whole church to grow in understanding of God's revelation and of, uh, and so this is just one other example uh, that it's not the same thing. <laughs> I mean, celebrating in the, in, in the liturgy of 1570, and of 1964 or 69, it is a different sense of the church and of communion with the whole people of God and with the whole creation, all humanity. And so this is why it's dangerous because it could give a, a, an impression of, of I mean, relativism from a conservative point of view. Well, it's the same. Well, it's, it's not the same. It's different. And so here, ecclesiology and liturgy are really one in the liturgical reform. If you change the liturgy, it's because you change a certain understanding of, 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 of the church, of the members of the church, 
of priesthood, of course, because we no longer accept the idea that only the priest celebrates and we observe, we are the audience. Yes. We are co-celebrants. Uh, and so this is not really part of the, of, of the theology of the 16th century. Right, yeah, we have this this idea that, that our theological beliefs need to be reflected in our worship, right? This this phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi, right? What we, the way we pray is shows what we believe. Um, Masumi, I appreciate the chance to get, get your perspective on this and get some more historical context from somebody who, who knows the history really well. So thanks for, thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You can find Massimo Fagioli's work in Commonweal Magazine and La Croix International, and on Twitter at Massimo Fagioli. And you can find conversations like this one, along with short documentaries, explainer videos, and a really beautiful memorial service for Catholics who have died of COVID-19 on our YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash Media. This episode of Behind the Story was produced and edited by Kevin Jackson and remixed for Inside the Vatican by Maggie Van Dorn. For American Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next week. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.